Bibles there. Deuteronomy chapter 6. <clears throat> Let's stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons, and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Let the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, 
What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day, and it will be righteousness for us if we, are to, if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. So far the reading of God's holy word, we give thanks for it. Uh, you may be seated, and as we come to this portion of God's word, let us pray for God's help. Almighty God, uh, we are thankful for your testimonies, for your word, for your statutes, for the written record of who you are, of what you've done, uh, of all that you direct your people so that we might know, so that we don't have to search for ourselves. We don't have to look within or read in tea leaves who you are, what you've done, what you would have us do. You tell us plainly in words accommodated to us. And we are thankful. And we are thankful, God, that you've told your people to confess the truth about you. And we are thankful that you've preserved your people in doing so throughout the millennia, since even this passage was given to some degree or other. You've preserved us in that. And so we pray that as we begin a new series, as we think about this passage before us tonight, that you might encourage our hearts about your faithfulness to your church and our eagerness to say aloud and write within our hearts the things that we believe about you, about what you've done, about what your word teaches Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher. They are many. And bless the reading and preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts, to love you more, to serve you better. We ask it all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, It'll not surprise uh, those of you who've who've been here uh, for a good bit that, that I have this taste for, I guess, stories about comic book heroes, science fiction Stuff like that. Um, the thing is, I tend to watch them alone. <laughs> uh, because it, it necess- if, you, if you invite somebody along for these sorts of things, it, it necessarily invites the question, uh, well, what's this about? And, and then I have to answer it. <laughs> uh, what seems relatively normal as you watch things develop across a couple of movies or episodes when seems normal when you're by yourself all of a sudden becomes astoundingly obscure and and odd as you stumble for words that 
would explain the story in a way that doesn't make me seem like a weirdo, right? Um, and so, especially when someone doesn't have a, a fondness, a fellow, uh, a similar fondness for the content of what's happening in, in Superman or whatever, right? Stories about the fantastic gravitate toward, well, unwieldy uh, explanations and are, are hard to convince in, or sorry, are hard to condense into normal terms that we can summarize briefly. And the most fantastic story we have is the Bible. It tells the true account of all of history from beginning to end. And yet there are amazing things recorded there. And when we read it alone or with a group of people who are familiar with the Bible's contents, we're more comfortable reckoning with the scripture's incredible moments. But like when someone enters the room when you're watching Star Trek and says, what's going on? Although everything in the scripture is true, there are still some elements of the story that, that make us feel a bit out of place when we try to convey it, relate it, explain it to the uninitiated with no background. I wonder if you have a concise answer if someone found you reading the Bible and asked, what's that about? Where do you start? That's a, that's a hard question, isn't it? How, how do we do justice, not only to the main events, but also what we want people to take away? Not just the, the things that happen, but the significance and the meaning. How do we capture Scripture's meaning without drifting into generic religious platitudes, but also not overwhelming someone with details that seem so niche to the uninformed. Enter the Apostles' Creed. My hope for this sermon series is that we, we come to appreciate the Apostles' Creed as being about the Bible, telling us what the Bible is about. It's a Christian summary of the Scripture's key teachings. It's, it's been key to the church's life uh, in this capacity as one of its earliest uses even was, was as a baptismal confession for converts coming into the faith to state the faith that they were embracing, the things that they believe, the things that they believe from the Word of God. Throughout most of church history, just to put this in wider framework, because I suppose it's, it's probably going to get us at least towards the end of the year, in the evening, that we're going to look at the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and the Lord's Prayer. And throughout most of Christian history, these, these three elements, uh, these three, they're not exactly documents, but I suppose the texts, were thought of as foundational building blocks for Christian instruction. Uh, these three base components outlined the content of our faith, the direction of the Christian life, 
and the lived experience of the Christian life in prayer. And for this reason, most older teaching tools for the Christian faith included, well, a doctrinal overview, a summary of how to apply the Ten Commandments, and an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. I mean, our own Westminster Shorter Catechism and Larger Catechism does does exactly that. And so our evening service for the foreseeable future aims to elaborate these back-to-basics building blocks for Christian instruction, starting with the Apostles' Creed. Now, my, my goal for tonight is to show you, try to show you, that the Apostles' Creed is about understanding the whole Bible and about giving you words to express what our sacred text fundamentally teaches. Now, before, before we kind of get to the, the main point for tonight, I think we might need a little bit more introduction to what, what is even this, this document. How do, how, do we, how do we familiarize ourselves with it before we get to the details, starting in just a moment? So, the creed has been with us since the second century. Uh, the creed includes 12 articles, as they're called, 12 statements. It's got, I mean, if you, if you have that uh, open in the hymnal still, it's got 12 lines, which produced the, the later legend that each of the 12 apostles each contributed one line uh, to it. Um, I'd love that to be true. I mean, it's such a great story, isn't it? But, but it's not. Um, anyway, it, it is nonetheless the earliest and most essential summary of what the apostles taught it's apostolic in the sense of digesting what the apostles said. And my basic plan is after tonight that I, I hope we can get each article in one sermon. Although the, the first, admittedly, that's not true because the first line is going to take me a couple. So um, at some point we'll start 12 sermons, an undetermined point. <laughs> the, the creed is... To give you an outline of it, right, there's, there's 12 statements, but the whole creed is structured by the Trinity. And actually, our hymnal uh, made that really clear on, on the page. That was, that was helpful um, in the way that they set that on the page for us, right? It, it has three major sections. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. His only Son, our Lord. I believe in the Holy Spirit. These are kind of the three hinge points along the way. The creed lists several things under each heading that are most closely associated with that person of the Godhead as, as their work. Interestingly, I, th- I think this is really fascinating. If, if you notice, the creed lists the church as the first aspect under the work of the Holy Spirit, which means traditional Christianity has has always thought that the Spirit's work is most prominently expressed 
in how he leads, develops, and prospers the church, the communion of saints. So often we get distracted, don't we, in kind of the, the longing for ethereal experience. And yet, for 2,000 years, Christians have thought, well, the experience of the Spirit is most manifestly expressed in, in the church. Now, perhaps you're wondering, if, you, if you're really sort of switched on, uh, perhaps you're wondering how the Apostles' Creed is a summary of the whole Bible if it's Trinitarian. Isn't that kind of a New Testament statement then? But that's, that's the whole point. That's the, the whole driving motivation of the Apostles' Creed is that the, the earliest Christians thought that the, the whole Bible is about the Trinity and that we should see the Trinity all over the place in every page of Scripture. And they were right. The Old Testament is as much the story of the triune God working salvation for his people in Jesus Christ as the new is. The same covenant of grace under types and shadows and plainly exhibited. So as we start this series, the, well, the whole first line, I believe in God the Father Almighty, well, that, that is a bit too much, at least for me, to tackle in one go. And so as, as way of introduction to the, to the whole idea of, of starting this series on the creed, This sermon focuses on the one little phrase at the beginning, I believe. I want to think about what it means to believe the truths of the Christian faith and and why the creed is is such a rich and needed resource Christians should use for help, strength, and to increase and express our faith. So our main point tonight... Our main point tonight is the Apostles' Creed summarizes necessary Christian belief and and helps us stand for it. The Apostles' Creed summarizes necessary Christian belief and helps us stand for it. And our three points are that it's commanded, cultivating, and countercultural. First, let's think about how is the creed commanded? Why why should we have something like the creed? Why should we have a statement of our faith that formulates for us how to express our beliefs? After all, I mean, some churches champion the mindset of no creed but the Bible or or. Deeds, not creeds. And the first thing to say is, um, I think that's a little uncalibrated. The, the Latin word credo, from which we get the English word creed, just means I believe. Uh, so as soon, so I mean, to say um, no creed is no belief but the Bible. Um, anyway, as soon as you ask someone what the Bible teaches... Or how to understand a passage, 
you've moved from just the words of Scripture to, to some sort of creed, to some sort of belief. And the question is then, you know, when you, when you depart from just the raw words of Scripture to trying to explain and, and bring it to application, as soon as you make that move, the question is, well, who came up with that creed? Is it trustworthy? I mean, the maxim, deeds, not creeds, would then mean works, not belief, which is, at best, flat moralism or, or objection to Christianity out, outright. Um, the main reason we should have creeds, though, I mean, beside the, the sort of, um, I mean, I'm trying to show that we have to at a practical level, but, but the main reason we should have them is, is because the Bible models it and commands it. And so there's a, there's a scriptural pattern of confessing what we believe as a way of binding ourselves to the Lord and standing together as God's people in the faith. A, a creed, a confession is immensely unifying. Amongst the people of God. We say something together. We stand together. In treasuring these beliefs. So in Deuteronomy 6. Moses set forth as he begins there in verse 1. The commandment. From the Lord. That is to be taught. In the land from one generation to the next. This is about handing on. What has come from the Lord. And the issue is then. The sum of religious life. And Moses then stated in verses 4 to 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. We ought to note two things here. First, first and, and more directly for our purposes tonight, verse 4 is a, is a confession of belief. It's a statement about what is, is said to be true. And we're going to come back to that and, and essentially spend most of our time unpacking that. But second, right, the, verse 5 then goes on to say, love the Lord your God wholly, which is how Jesus summarizes the first four of the Ten Commandments. Loving, loving your neighbor as yourself, summarizing the five to ten So this passage includes a summary of belief and a summary of the Ten Commandments. Two of those three (laughs) basics of Christian instruction that we noted at the beginning. Now, now let's come back to that first one, right? Let's think about this as a a biblical creed. And I think think there's a couple of things uh, interesting here. I mean, first, um, as he moves on, I mean, so... Uh, this is a statement, that, so the statement that the Lord is one became a, an essential, the fundamental theological confession in Israel. 
And, and if you note, I mean, so it's carried on as the statement of faith. And if you notice, one of the concerns that God has is that you remember the Lord your God. Giving a, a statement of faith as God hands it to us is about remembering the Lord. And then we come to verse 20, and there's an assumption, the, the assumption we kind of began with tonight, what are you going to do when your kids ask you? What's this about? And we have to answer that question. What are, what are we going to say when our kids ask us what our faith is about? What do we do? And, I mean, it's kind of wrapped up in here. We, we state what the Lord has taught us. And we're going to get to why the Apostles' Creed is a necessary and useful tool to do that. This, this doctrine from Deuteronomy 6.4, that the Lord our God is one, was recited in all worship services in Israel. Jesus cited it in Mark 12.29. Paul appealed to it in light of Christ in 1 Corinthians 8. 4 to 6. So the New Testament brings the same confession of truth into the church for our use. And Paul then outrights it. So jumping, so we've got, well, God handed us an inspired statement of faith. Okay, we, we could all get on board with, with saying what, what God has written in Scripture. But but how do we how do we get from there to well digesting the essential truths of Scripture to confess them apart from that, or distinct from that, I suppose. Paul outright says in 2 Timothy 1.13, he says, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. We're meant to have a, a healthy formulation of how to say what we believe we camped in Jude for for several months and and what was his initial exhortation contend for the faith the faith faith that was once for all delivered to the saints there's an objective body of truth delivered from one generation to the next with the which the church must defend. The Apostles' Creed is, is our most basic statement of, of the faith. And so we're creedal, we're creedal because Scripture commanded it. So we have the, the imperative from the Bible itself for creeds. Let's think about our second point. That the creed is isn't just commanded, it's, it's also cultivating. It's nourishing. Uh, the creed and the, and the whole disposition of being creedal, confessional, it is not just biblical as something we need to do. It's good for us. The creed has powerful effects of, of uniting us to unbelievers. I mean, sorry, to other believers. <laughs> the creed has powerful effects of uniting us to other 
believers. We're bound together in the things that we're saying are true. We are united in sharing these things. And we're going to come back to that in a bit. But also, I mean, and, and there's this, this richness of, that we've seen in the Bible, handing things down from one generation to the next. And so there's, there's that way in which it's good for the church. And, and I think one of the things that we miss, I mean, especially in our day and age, we kind of push it off as stodgy and old. And I just want to note how the creed is also profoundly personal. What's the first word in the creed? I. I believe. I think this is true. The creed is about owning our beliefs. It is about stating those truths that get written on our hearts. It's about associating ourselves with the great essentials of what it means to be a Christian. I believe these things. We should memorize the creed. Moderns are afraid of memory. As if rote knowledge of something automatically means it can't be heartfelt. Um, but, but, I mean, you have to remember the names of your loved ones. <laughs> you need to remember their, their birth dates. You need to remember your anniversary. And you'll learn the hard way if you don't. You need to remember the major events of your loved one's lives. Memory is not opposed to love in the slightest. In fact, Memory is a way we ingrain something upon our deepest layers. We should say the creed, not just, not just ropely, but from the bottom of our hearts. I believe. And belief is a powerful thing. When we announce our beliefs, it is a statement about what we think is real. When we say the Apostles' Creed, we are affirming our position that that this statement of our faith describes reality. These things are true. It's true that God is triune, that He made the world, that Jesus Christ is the only and true way to salvation, and that the Holy Spirit applies Salvation through the church's means of grace, guaranteeing everlasting life for everyone who belongs to Jesus. To say the creed is to say that is a description of reality. And Jesus Christ said that we should not be ashamed of him before the world. And, and the Apostles' Creed is, is, one, is one tried and true way really to shout from the rooftops that we happily own the triune God and Jesus Christ as ours and and want to be tied to him. Stating our affirmation of Christianity's great truths makes them well up within us. It is cultivating for our faith to confess our faith. And that brings us to our final point. That the creed is countercultural. 
It's countercultural. I want to lean the, the closing reflections here to, to show that it's really radical to be creedal and to love the Christian heritage. Christians today are rightly worried about the shape of society. Uh, and unfortunately, I'm not always sure that we, we take exactly the right, holistically speaking, the right posture in response. And, and my contention is that being creedal is one way of being truly and wildly countercultural in a nourishing way for us as we live in the world without being of it. How? How? Well, I mean, one of the, one of the fundamental things that we can say about today is that the culture is all about self-expression. I mean, the spirit of, of the age is your truth, right? Or my truth. And that you should be true to, to whatever you feel is authentic as it wells up individually in you. Don't listen to anyone else. Anyone who, who contravenes your self-originating ideas and perceptions is just full of hate speech, right? And so our culture is one that cherishes tearing down tradition and ignoring what comes to us from the outside in favor of what breeds inside us. But what does Scripture say? What does Scripture say? There's a list of passages. I'm just going to read them to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 1 Corinthians 15.3. That which we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us, 1 John 1.3. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed, Galatians 1.9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you, Philippians 4.9. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness, and, this is striking, and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us, 2 Thessalonians 3.6. The point is clear that, that we are to receive what we know from outside ourselves as it is handed down to us according to our heritage as Christians. God gave us the Bible as the infallible rule of faith. And the church reflected upon Scripture to summarize its most important and essential claims in the Apostles' Creed. This is the guide that the earliest Christians gave to reading the Bible. If you want to understand the Bible, here's the lanes in which you can drive. If, if you think you understand the Bible, but it, it doesn't accord with one of these 12 lines, you've misunderstood the Bible. It's necessary to believe the Creed, as, as this is our most basic 
claim as Christians to, to what the Bible teaches. Lots of, lots of people pretend that they believe the Bible and pretend that they love God. If they claim something that is, is contrary to how Christians understand our faith, well, they have not comprehended the truth. And they're not familiar with the true God. And that is exactly why we thought this document was necessary for 2,000 years. And it is then countercultural to stand with the creed as a testimony that we ought to receive from outside ourselves. It's better to be taught than to presume that we know. And that flies right in the, probably, I don't want to guess at the percentage. I imagine people bristled in here just at hearing that. It's hard even to say. Our culture hates the idea that somebody ought to teach us rather than I just know it's true. And so let's be eager. Let's stand against all the things you don't like and be eager to receive. To take what's been handed down to us. And that posture of receiving what comes from outside of us, doesn't it correspond exactly with the gospel? Faith looks outside ourselves for salvation itself. And so too shouldn't faith look outside ourselves for the message of salvation? To know what the content of the good news and Christian instruction is? Faith looks to Jesus for his work on our behalf performed outside of us, applied to us but performed outside of us to make us right with God. He gives us his righteousness. It's alien to us, coming to us. And so too, we ought to look outside ourselves to know what is true. We, we, we speak weekly, rightly so, of Christ's work for us as priest. His, his life, death, and resurrection to to reconcile us with God and to grant everlasting life to us by grace alone, received by faith in Jesus. And rightly, we beat that drum every Lord's Day. And we should also remember Christ's kingship, that he rules his people for our good. He promised to advance His church, that the gates of hell would never prevail against us. And Christians have been reciting the Apostles' Creed for at least 1,800 years. Isn't that evidence of Jesus' promise being kept? We, because of Jesus' grace, by which he has never abandoned us, nor forsaken us, nor left us to our own devices, even when we had our low moments in our two millennia as a church. Jesus has stood by us, and because of Jesus' grace in that way, we get to say the same exact words as believers from millennia past. 
we get to celebrate Jesus for the same truths that have been handed down to us since the church's cradle. Jesus has preserved his church. He has upheld us in seeing and loving these fundamental truths in the Bible. Jesus reigns. We know it because we still believe the same things that we were believing when he ascended. And we get to celebrate his grace and his faithfulness to us every time we recite, I believe. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful for Christ's promise that he would always be with us. We are grateful for the evidence of your good providence for your church, that we still believe the same truths that we believed shortly after Christ ascended. Indeed, the same truths, but we have the same words to say it for so long. What a testimony to your grace. And we continue to be part of that testimony, that we believe in God the Father Almighty, in Jesus Christ, your only Son, our Lord, in the Holy Spirit, who works for your glory, for our good, in the church, in the communion of saints, and will do so until the resurrection of the body. Thrill our hearts that we get to say, I believe. And that we get to say that we believe these things, declaring them to be true. And so as we start this series, we pray that you make it profitable, not only to our minds, to, to know the things that we believe as Christians, but to our hearts. To rejoice at the things that we believe as Christians. We pray it all in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.